Good morning. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord and to worship, um, just to be able to gather together as we continue this sermon series through Lent. This is our, uh, the final installment, this five-week uh, five series of Humanity's Condition. And I want to kind of remind us that you know, when, when Lent began, we began on Ash Wednesday, and there's an important reading on Ash Wednesday every year. It's taken from the prophet Joel, chapter 2. And I want to read just a portion of this prophet um, because it's important for us to hear this and to remember why we are going through Lent. Joel lays it out clearly. In, in, in chapter 2 of Joel, verses 13, or sorry, 12 and 13, Joel writes, Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. This is an important note for us to remember. As we make our way through Lent, we are called to, re, to, to, to work with God, to respond to God's love and forgiveness, to his grace, that he can begin this good work within us. We are to rend our, open ourselves, bear ourselves to God, make known to God that we acknowledge our broken places, our sin, our weakness, all that is wrong in our life. And we've been kind of working our way through this this whole notion of humanity's condition, this stuff we have to walk around with, it's part of being human, that we have to carry this baggage or, or wear this skin that comes with all of this stuff. You know, we began, and, and we've worked through all these Old Testament stories. We began with the Garden of Eden. Eden, that's a great place to start, the Garden of Eden, Genesis. And we, we, we understood there that through Adam and Eve's disobedience. They realized that in disobeying God in taking up the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, the knowledge of the tree of, of, of knowledge of good and evil, that they had disobeyed God. And in disobedience they were made aware that they were naked, they were vulnerable, and they were in shame. And they tried to hide from God in their shame. That's part of the human condition. We, are, we tend to disobey. We tend to rebel against God. And when we do that, we find ourselves with a great sense and deep sense of shame. We walk around with that. It's part of being human. The next story we looked at in the Old Testament was the Tower of, ba uh, of Babel. And in that story, if you remember, that the people all had one language and they decided that they could be secure if they could stay in one place, build a large city, and this tower as a testament to their power, a tower to the skies. And this city would give them a place where they could remain in security, in their own sense of unity. God seeing what was happening and this folly of humanity changes languages and the people are scattered all over creation and so we have this we have this condition and as being human that we we want a sense of security we desire a security and we and we try to find that security in a sense of unity that we want to define 
But God defines unity through Jesus Christ in this great uh, creation, good creation that is so diverse. So in our, our condition struggles with finding unity in so much diversity. In the third week, Kristen talked about these Israelites, how they had come out of Egypt and they were being led by God uh, through Moses, through the wilderness, and they arrived at this place where there was no water and they had run out of water and they began to quarrel with Moses and with one another because they were without. And she reminded us, if we were without water, we too would probably complain. If we were without something we really needed, we would probably complain. But in this story, we're reminded that God has taken care of the Israelites the whole time. When there was bitter water, it was made sweet. When there was no food, there was manna and quail. When they needed water here, it was provided by Moses striking this rock and water pouring forth. God takes care of God's people in the wilderness, wherever we are. But what it tells us about our condition is that we, are, we, we tend to be dissatisfied. And when we get dissatisfied, we become impatient and we become quite quarrelsome with one another and quarrelsome with God. But God is gracious. God is forgiving. And he provides what we need. And last week, we talked about the golden calf. The people were there gathered at the base of Mount Sinai, the Mount of God, and, and, and they, they began to miss Moses. Moses had been on the mountain for 40 days. He had already given them the Ten Commandments in the first 40 days. And he had he'd come up and down the mountain. And he was gone again. And they began to miss Moses. And they began to wonder, what about this Moses? Where is he? Who's going to lead us? He's been gone for 40 days. When, when is, he, is he coming back? I don't know. Aaron, you're our priest. Make us a God. Fashion a God for us who will lead us out of the wilderness. They had forgotten everything that had happened that God had provided through the wilderness, freed them from slavery and bondage, led them through the Red Sea, freed them from the, from the, the pressing army of the Egyptians and had conquered enemies throughout the wilderness. And here they were, forgetful. And what we learn in this is that part of being human is that we are hardwired to believe. We have to believe something. And we will believe in anything, anyone, or any idea that we think will give us what we want, what we need. And we find ourselves in this condition of being vulnerable to idolatry, placing a God before the one true God, a God beside the one true God. Our God, the one true God, is a jealous God and will not share space with any of our fabricated gods, our ideas, our people, our things that we think will save us, that we think will give us position and power, that we think will give us what we need and what we want. Well, now we find ourselves in the fifth week, and we're, we, um, we're going to talk about David and Bathsheba. This, this is a fun story to talk about in, here in Lent, but there's something very important in this story. I want to kind of set the stage. If you think about 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel, if Samuel has, has been around the prophet and the judge, Samuel has been around for some time. 
He was the one who anointed Saul to be the first king of Israel. Saul was a dismal failure, as it was predicted. Samuel told him, this is going to be problematic, but this is the guy we want. Now we're, we're getting to David. David has, has, has become into the scene in 1 Samuel. At the end of 1 Samuel, Saul and his son Jonathan have been killed in battle. And, and in, the, in, the, in the first chapter of chapter, the second book of Samuel, David hears about the death of Samuel, or, I'm sorry, of Saul and Jonathan, too many S names. Saul and, and Jonathan, and he, he laments. He mourns their death. This was his king. This was, this was his best friend, Jonathan, and they have been killed in battle. And he weeps over them. But then we learn that David has been anointed king of Judah, and a little later he'll be anointed king of Israel. And so now we have a united kingdom again, and we have David as its king, and he is a good king. He is a fine king. He has a, a heart of God. And he begins to conquer the enemies of Israel, one after the other. The, Moab, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Jebusites, the Amorites. And then he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the capital city, his city. This is, it doesn't get any bigger than this. David has created quite the government, quite, quite a kingdom that could never have happened under Saul. He's been given the promise that through the Davidic dynasty it will last for eternity. This was given by God to David. He has, he couldn't, this is the pinnacle. Everything was going well. He was sitting on top of the world. And then this happens. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported that this is Bathsheba, daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to fetch her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people feared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you have just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah 
that remain in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in the presence, in his presence and made him drunk. In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. May God bless the reading of the word. Thanks be to God. Now this is a, a difficult read. David, this powerful man of God, a man after God's own heart, has committed adultery. He's committed adultery against his wife or wives. He's committed adultery against his neighbor, Uriah. He's committed adultery against his God. He's broken relationships critical, important relationships. And then he tries to hide it. One way or another, I'm going to hide this wrongdoing. First, he invites Uriah back home, that maybe he'll go and be with his wife, and he will be able to hide this wrongdoing. Next, he invites Uriah back to the house and tries to get him drunk, and then maybe he'll go back down and be with his wife, or maybe he just won't remember but again, Uriah foils David's attempts. And finally, he sends Uriah back to the front with a letter to the commander to put Uriah in the, in the heart of the fighting, on the front line. And when the fighting rages its peak, pull back and leave Uriah. And that's what happened. Uriah is killed in battle, giving David a sense of protection, that he would not be found out of his wrongdoing. Maybe this is what we can take away for the human condition. We know that what David did was wrong according to the Ten Commandments. They're pretty clear. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not covet your neighbor's wife or his house or his livestock. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. We can look at David in this episode and see every one of these things happening. And then here he is trying to hide every one of these wrongdoings from one step to the next to the next until ultimately it's an act of violent murder. Maybe there's something in there for us. Maybe we all don't like to be wrong. Maybe that's part of the human condition, 
is that we will avoid, we have a, a great fear of being wrong. We will avoid being wrong at any cost, or at least being discovered being wrong. There's, there's different reasons for us exploring not being wrong. One is we could be found out to be an imposter. Oh, we're not, we're not who we said we are. And people, we're afraid people are going to find that out, whether it's true or not. People make mistakes. People are wrong. But we have this great fear of being found wrong. One, to be found out an imposter. One is that we don't want to make a mistake. We're, we're so afraid of being wrong that we don't, we don't move forward. We don't take risk. We don't grow because we're afraid of making a mistake. That's part of the human condition. And this part of the human condition really complicates the rest of the human condition. Because if we're afraid to be, admit being wrong, acknowledging being wrong, and, and laying our wrong out there before God, all this stuff that we carry around that we call the human condition, all this disobedience, all of this um, uh, dissatisfaction, the idolatry, the shame, we will continue to carry that with us until we're willing to say, I'm wrong. I have wronged this person or that person. I've, I've been wrong in this relationship or that relationship, and I've wronged my God. Because if we can't admit that we're wrong, and we can't admit our wrongs, then how are we going to ask for forgiveness? How do we rend our hearts and not just our clothing? How do we get back in the right relationship with God if we are so afraid of being wrong that we would never admit it and we would go to any length to hide being discovered being wrong? That's the hard part of, the, of our human condition. And then it affects so much. So maybe a lesson here for us is to look at David and to realize at the end of the book, at the end of Samuel, the writer tells us that, that David was a holy and righteous man, a good king, a man after God's own heart, and he made one mistake. One wrong that spiraled and spiraled. But what this tells us is that what we, we, we can't have a wrong so grave that God will not forgive us. God is so gracious, so forgiving, so loving that God forgives us of whatever our wrongs are. We've just got to give them up. We've got to acknowledge them. And, and in, in acknowledging our wrongs, we are working with God to renew us and bring us to the people, the human, that God has called and created us to be which is more perfectly human, good. So the, the challenge for us and the challenge for the world is to be able to acknowledge that sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes we, we wrong people, we wrong relationships, and, and, and we wrong God. But we have the confirmation through David, the 
confirmation through the prophets, the confirmation through the gospels that we have a gracious and loving God who wants to forgive us and bring us back into relationship with God and with one another. So we live in this skin, this flesh of the humanity's condition. We grow and we become more of who we are called and created to be when we acknowledge this condition and we respond to God. In this season of Lent, let us acknowledge those times when we have seen our condition marred by disobedience and shame, confusion, insecurity in a world filled with diversity, marred by want and dissatisfaction and dispute, marred by idolatry of anyone and anything or anything other than God, and marred by fear of being wrong or being discovered wrong. All this stuff is difficult, but when we resist, and fight being found wrong, we create just another barrier to our responding to God's love and grace. So this season, as we seek to rend our hearts and not only our clothes, if we can acknowledge our weaknesses, our broken places and our sins, if we can admit that we have been wrong, then we can begin toward being the person that God has created and called us to be. Let us use Lent as a reminder that this is how we live. We acknowledge our wrongs, we ask for forgiveness, and we forgive others. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.